The Chancellor speaks to the Chiefs of Staff. Shudder. Nigeria, what's the UK interest? Is it more than oil? Why World War I soldiers liked a beef vindaloo? And what's in a name? Kim Jong-un says, I am the one and only. The big political story in the UK this week has been the Chancellor's autumn statement on the economy. It's the time that he sets out the financial future of the nation, including whether the UK can spend, save or cut. Our defence analyst Christopher Lee is here. Hello, Christopher. For the armed forces, it's the cut bit we need to worry about, isn't it? And there are going to be more cuts. Now, this is not the budget that he's come up with. That comes out in March. And that tells you whether he's got a couple of pence on beer and, and, and cigarettes and things like that. What he does do and he did this week, is say, look, we've got to have something like 60 billion, 60 billion pounds worth of cuts over the next few years. And every department is going to have to take part in that cut exercise. And the Defence Department can't get out of it. It's not ring-fenced as it has been before. Mm. And so, considering there's going to be, if you remember, a Defence Review, that's going to take place before the Defence Review... So mm. next year... Can you actually read into the, anything in the fact that there's money going to be allocated from LIBOR to military charities and things like that? Is that the sweetener before the bitter bit, do you think? Or, or? No, I don't think so. I think, I mean, if you want the sweeteners, it's the price of houses. So you reduce the taxes on, on the lower-priced houses and you increase them on the other houses. Those are the things that actually get people going along with the idea, well, the next election is going to be about the economy, stupid. Mm. Now, as far as the defence chiefs are concerned... They're saying to themselves, right, we're going to be told how much we're going to have to cut before we put our papers forward for the shape of the British Armed Forces for the next 20 years. So, um, if you could put your money where your mouth is, excuse the pun. I will. What, what, would, you, I will. what, what would you say would be happening to the Armed Forces in terms of budget and cuts? Uh, the Armed Forces will probably... Uh, the, If you like the buying bit of the Armed Forces, mm. uh, um, that will probably be okay. They'll still be able to buy, for example, about 1% more than they are buying at the moment in terms of money. What you get for that money is a different thing. So that's pretty safe. And one of the reasons it's very safe is because it means jobs, it means British industries, etc. But what is going to be important is what you can buy because of what you're being asked to do. Mm. And so, for example, and this is something we've touched before, for example, if today... The Royal Navy went along and said, by the way, we want two aircraft carriers, which they're now having got from the last review, they would be told no. So it's a complete rethink, perhaps, on the, on, on the basic structure of the armed forces. Well, on the subject of finances, Britain has withdrawn from Afghanistan all but its rearguard troops. Now begins the task of rebuilding what's left behind. Today, in London, yet another donor conference took place. Uh, Christopher, who is there exactly? 59 countries. Their representatives, more or less at foreign secretary level or representatives of those people, plus all the non-government organisations, the NGOs, all the people and business who are looking at Afghanistan and they're asking this question, what do you want, what can we get into, and how can you protect our interests if we're trying to help you out? So how much is being asked for monetarily? They've got ideas of how much but they're not telling anybody how much because nobody um, nobody really knows. 
at this state, it's a bit like, it's the wrong expression, but a bit like children in need. You hope people pledge a lot of money. Not all of it turns up, and that is the worry of the of the Afghans themselves, that they've uh, been asked, asked for money before and it hasn't all succeeded. And one of the reasons it hasn't succeeded is because the interests of the big organisations, including companies, can't be protected, even physically. What exactly is the money needed for? What would it be used for as a priority? Well, three things. One is the security, so you've got to have somebody who can finance all sorts of things. For example, if you want to buy some aeroplanes, uh, for your armed forces, or if you want to buy aeroplanes for, uh, for just shifting around the country, small, small feeder aircraft, somebody's got to pay for them. And this is the interesting thing, is that, I think, is that people are saying, oh, this is all charity, you know, we've left the war, we've still got, let's say, 10, 14,000 combat troops, as the Americans have, we've got people in the United Kingdom in there, so the war's not really over. But what it is, is the reconstruction of a country which has never been a viable state, in an area, a region, which is quite often a series of failed states, but the most fantastic thing, that all these people sitting in, the, in Lancaster House in London today, they all knew one thing. Afghanistan is potentially one of the richest countries in that area. So with that... And in, let's get some. Do, do, do you think, then, that, that, that the actual aid will be enduring? Uh, there will be enduring in, in tranches. And so you say, right, let's suppose you say, well, I can, I can actually... What do you mean, enduring in tranches? Uh, in tranches. So you say, well, I will build an, uh, an airport. But there's no point in having an airport unless we've got people to maintain it. And so the second tranche is that when you've got the airport running, you've got people saying, right, I will now finance the whole support system for that airport. When you get into agriculture, three years down the line of crop rotation, for example, you want it developed. Also, if the country is going to build... You want a country that is going to advance, otherwise it just stagnates. And so the money comes in, 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 in separate periods, maybe over... And we've got to think of it over sort of 20 or 30 years. All right, Christopher, stay with us. I'm sure there'll be more coming from this conference later on. Sit rep with Still to come, robot wars. How should states prevent the machines from taking control? And recipes from the trenches. How the British Army planned to feed itself in the First World War. PFBS Zipreb. Reports out of Washington, the Middle East and France are claiming that the Iranian Air Force is bombing targets in Iraq. Christopher, the Iranians have not admitted this. Is it happening? What do um, we think? Well, we think it's happening um, because the Iranians are not saying that they're not doing it. Uh, the Americans are saying that we think they are, in fact, they are doing it. And there is a crucial bit of evidence. There's a lot of film which shows uh, north of Baghdad, northeast of Baghdad, uh, terrain, which is partly identifiable. And then in blue skies flying over there are um, F-4s. Uh, F4s probably, I looked at them, probably Mark 8s, maybe Mark 8s, maybe not Mark 10s. Mark and these, these okay. are only, uh, which countries has them? Well, there are only two countries that have got them, flying them in that region at the moment. And don't mm. forget, you can't bring them from elsewhere because they haven't got the fuel capacity. It's Turkey. Turkey ain't flying any operations, mm. and Iran. And so Iran's got an interest in doing so. And that is that IS, and that, don't forget, that's who they're bombing. They're not just bombing Iraqis, they're bombing a uh, uh, Sunni-based IS, which is close to the Iranian border. Is this being done in conjunction, assuming it is, with the Americans? I don't think it's in, junction, uh, in conjunction directly with the Americans. And the Americans and the Iranians, I don't think, will do that. But what happens, the Iranians would have to tell the Baghdad government, wouldn't they, that they're going to be flying over their territory and that's what they're going to do. And what would the Baghdad government do? 
They're telling the Americans. In, in neighbouring Syria, President Bashar al-Assad is saying these bombings haven't really done any harm. Have they in either Iraq or Syria? Well, they're on a, on a, on a bigger basis. I think he's talking really just here about Syria. There have been something like a thousand sorties over there at the moment. And what the Americans would say is you can't fix this with bombing. John Kerry said that yesterday morning, in fact. You can't fix it with bombing, but what you can, you can disrupt. After they killed a lot of the uh, IS leadership, you can you can stop things happening. You can you you can stem the tide, and that's all they have done. Could Britain be about to send dozens of military trainers to Nigeria? It's reported there's been a request from the country to help fighting Boko Haram extremists. So what could Britain do? Dan Hooten is a former Royal Naval officer and is the managing director of the security company Spearfish, and he joins me now. Dan, good to speak to. You were out in Nigeria just two weeks ago. What's the situation there? Yeah, I was there for a week and we we're in Abuja and we're really looking at the risk to the north of the country. Um, there's a lot going on there at the moment and we're really seeing a build-up in risk as we approach the elections in February of next year. Uh, and, for example, just last week we had the attack on the Grand Mosque in Kano. We had a double suicide bombing in Madaguri up in the uh, northeast state of Borno. Um, there was another Boko Haram attack in Damasak, uh, and then there was some central plateau violence between Fulani herdsmen and villagers. So, you know, and that was just one week. So, all in all, there's a, there's a lot going on there. Um, it does tend to be uh, seen as a, as a ramping of risk as we approach, as I say, the elections in Feb. Um, uh, and there's a lot of things to think about in terms of managing risk for people who are who are operating in the country. So, how strong is Boko Haram at the moment? Well, I think they're certainly getting a lot of attention. Um, they're certainly carrying out some very effective raids. Uh, and their aim at the moment, really, I mean, they seem to be targeting um, towns, areas of ground that they can take and hold, um, which to some extent is working, to some extent is not. So I think they can be seen as being particularly strong in their areas of, um, of operation in the, the three northeastern states of emergency. Um, but then they also have operational capability in other places. Um, we've seen attacks in Abuja. Um, we've seen the Kano bombing mosque I just mentioned uh, and other areas that are outside their, their area of comfort, but they do have the capability. So I think it's fair to say at the moment they are, uh, you know, they're, they're definitely on the up uh, and they don't seem to be um, to be waning at this point. And what's your assessment of, of how the government there in Nigeria is coping? Can they deal with the problem? Well, I think the, the jury's out on that one at the moment. I mean, the Chibok girls issue did really put this firmly into, in, in, into the international spotlight, um, which has put a lot of pressure on, on good luck shoulders. Um, I think locally, when you go and speak to people in country, there's a lot of general dissatisfaction with the state of security. Um, you hear uh, reports of the military having a lot of um, morale problems, um, people being militarily defeated, in particular this was in uh, Mubi um, the week before last. So I think at the moment um, it, it's at a bit of a tipping point. And um, uh, as I say, I think the jury is out as to whether they're going to contain it and effectively handle it. Let's just talk briefly about how other countries can help militarily. I understand that the, American, that the deal with the Americans to train the Ni a battalion of Nigerian army is now on hold over a, a row about something else with America. What about the British? How can the British military help? As far as I'm aware, I mean, there's been support on in things like um, intelligence information gathering, um, training teams, uh, and there was a report in the media this week saying that that has been considered to be increased. Um, but again, I think there's got to be balanced with the, uh, the, the political um, concerns in terms of putting our troops into the field, um, you know, in the, into the, the path of danger. 
um, versus the strategic importance of actually trying to help them bring um, Boko Haram under control. So, so again, I think it's quite hard to assess um, sitting from where I am, but I think there's probably going to be more support uh, and training and capability building perhaps over the medium to, to longer term. Christopher, what's your assessment? What, what is Britain's interest in Nigeria? And do you think there will be more of a commitment militarily to support the army there? The interest... Uh, of, of the United Kingdom, a lot of other countries. There's a fact there's an awful lot of oil there for a start. Secondly, there's an imperial history. And we've tended to, not just Nigeria, we've tended to sort of send uh, quite smart cadets to Sandhurst and turn them out as potential presidents. We've got this sort of thing with Nigeria and a lot of other African states. The immediate difficulty is that you can put people into an interval training teams. Um, maybe special forces. What you can't do necessarily is when you look at that territory, especially when you're thinking of the, I, don't know, I suppose, the northeast states, which are important, uh, which is firm ground as far as any, um, we call them Islamist if you like, but that sort of organisation where you, you can't get into the local population who might be part of the sort of the, uh, the countermeasures. You can't do that. And therefore, you've got to hope to be able to train on a much longer level. What's happened under good luck and others is, for example, this famous middle management of the army, um, that sort of company commander level, senior NTO level, that's more or less collapsed. And that is where probably we could do something, but we can't do a great deal. And then we've got, we've got to accept that it's far, far less than we would like to do. And that's why... Um, people like Spearfish have got such an important role. One is because they know what's going on on the ground. And second thing, they can actually identify what can be done rather than what you would like to do in a, in a training session in Whitehall. Dan, uh, Chris was saying you can identify what can be done. What do you think should be done in the country to stabilise it? Obviously, the elections are coming up, as you mentioned. Well, I think that's a, that's a big part of it, and it really does depend on who is going to be in the chair come uh, middle of February next year. Um, it could be someone with a completely different agenda, um, which means really we've got to, to look at what they want to achieve and how uh, that's going to fit in with the strategic objectives of, of UK PLC. Um, but I agree with Chris. I think this addressing of the morale stroke capability issue at the middle ranks within the military is probably key, um, and some form of capability building through training, and longer-term support, as well as technological support in terms of intelligence gathering and information on the insurgency on the ground are probably the two areas um, that can be focused upon by people like the UK and, and the US. Um, but as well as, uh, as that, we also have you know, other African nations who perhaps can, can lend a hand here as well. All right, Dan Hooten from the security company Spearfish, thank you for your time today. Thank you. This is BFBS Sidrep. President Vladimir Putin has today given his State of the Nation speech. Christopher, it's a bit different from last year's, isn't it? It is. Last year he was saying, well, you know, the economy is doing OK, etc. In spite of it, everybody's getting screwed up about things. And, of course, what's happened in, since then is Ukraine and also what has happened since then are the sanctions. And uh, the uh, the Russians are in a pretty bad state. The, uh, the devaluation of the, of the ruble against the dollar 
mm. is something like 50 percent and what he was saying though particularly i, I noticed he said he said for some con- european countries national pride is seen as a luxury but for russia it is a necessity in other words it's pointless to use threats mm. against them how important are these kind of speeches they're very important because what people do is they judge uh, judge the popularity of the leadership, and it goes beyond Putin, the leadership at, uh, at the Kremlin level, but also at the grassroots level. And every indication we've got at the moment is that if the economy was in bad state as it is, uh, and the way it was handled and the international appropriateness, you, you, you would actually find that the locals people, the people that got to vote eventually, or the people in the streets, would say... That guy Putin, you know, we, we've had enough of him. They don't. What they do is what they've always done in uh, Russia ever since the Tsar. Um, they blame the local officials who they find they're all corrupt and they're the people that foul them up. Just briefly, Christopher, we've had the uh, foreign minister's meeting this week in Brussels and now there's a meeting in Basel as well. Has there been, I know, I know Ukraine and the situation there has been very high on the agenda. Is there any progress? It is highest on on the agenda but jack kerry the american uh secretary of state uh is talking john john yes but jack kerry yes Mm -hmm. all right he's known as jack Um, (laughs) that's what you call it that's not his problem um uh, sergey lavrov the american uh, the the russian uh, foreign minister uh, has, uh, has, they've been talking. This is margins talk. This is where things get done. This is when uh, Kerry, Jack or John can actually say to him, listen, are we coming out of this thing? Where are we going to go with it? What happens when there's a new election? What are you going to do about it? And then they've been talking to Federica uh, uh, Mogherini, who is the EU foreign policy chief, like the foreign minister of the EU, and they get to in into a huddle. And to some extent... That is the only hope, diplomatic hope, is the fact that these people can actually mm. bring together a solution. Something I'm, I'm not sure they will be talking about, the idea of killer robots. It sounds like something from a science fiction movie. Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator springs to mind. But far from being a futuristic concept, the fact is we're already there. Robotic systems are becoming an important part of warfare. Just think of the increase in the use of drones, or to give them their proper name, they, well, they are recently called unmanned aerial vehicles. They moved on to something else now. Now. But uh, a new paper from Oxford University is questioning the morals of it. And I'm joined by the lead author, Dr. Alexander Leveringhouse, who spoke to me earlier from the Oxford Martin School. So I think we need to be careful here. So our first concern is to actually put the debate um, onto a sound footing. And um, if one looks at robotic systems, then one has to acknowledge that there are really a variety of systems. And that when we start to think about the use of robots in warfare, we actually have to be very careful to identify the sorts of systems we have in mind and to pick up the differences. Now, when it comes to the really problematic issues, then we are really concerned with robots that can be used for targeting. So you could have loads of robots in the military, of course, if you think, for example, of a bomb disposal robot, or if you think, for example, of a robotic pack mule, you know, those kinds of robots are being developed. And, you know, these seem to be quite unproblematic from a moral perspective and from a legal perspective. But, of course, once these robots start to carry a payload and can apply force, kinetic force to a target, then things, of course, become trickier. So what is your exact concern? Is it that one day humans will not be involved in making the decisions? 
Right. I mean, so this is this is very important. So in the policy paper, we um, distinguish between uh, two main ways of targeting. So in, in robotic weapons, so one way would be remote controlled, and that's what we're currently seeing in drones or in unmanned aerial vehicles or remotely piloted air systems, as they are called. Um, so here, the operator makes all the targeting decisions. The operator can see what's going on. Um, via a camera, you know, the drone has a sensor suite, it can pick up images from a particular theater, transmit these to an operator, and the operator can then issue commands to the system based on what he sees. Now, the worry is that uh, in future systems, uh, the role of the operator might be uh, reduced, so that once the system has been pre-programmed, um, the system can then go into the field and can then select a target or search for targets, select a target, and potentially um, engage, um, engage that target without the operator necessarily having to be there. And this is a different mode of targeting, what's sometimes referred to as autonomous targeting, and this is what raises the big, it seems to me, uh, legal and ethical question. So what kind of laws are in place and should be in place? So, I mean, we are saying that um, in, in a policy paper that um, this development does not, does not occur in a moral and legal vacuum. There are already laws in place, for example, international humanitarian law that regulate the use um, of armed force um, in conflict. And we think that rather than now going back to the drawing board to reformulate um, international laws to accommodate robotic weapons, we think that we should take a current international law and just apply it stringently. So, I mean, the law, we argue, has got everything we need to regulate robotic weapons. It just needs to be enforced uh, properly. What is the greatest danger, do you think? Is it another country hacking into someone's system and being able to operate their, 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 their drones? Is it, is it the fact that perhaps one day they might get out of control and operate autonomously? What, what is your biggest fear? Yes, I mean, there are a number of um, critical issues um, that we're flagging up. Uh, one, one fear is, which you've just identified, is that um, these systems are not um, very safe, that they could be subject to hacking, for example, that they could be reprogrammed, uh, for example, by an enemy, and could then be used uh, against one's own troops or could be used to commit war crimes. So there is a kind of big technological question, really, here about risk and safety uh, that needs to be tackled. Um, when it comes to further issues, and we are also worried about the reliability of these systems in identifying um, their targets. So in order to be able to operate without an operator making all the decisions um, as the machine is being deployed, um, we really, I mean, these machines would really function well if they have very unambiguous target signatures that they can log on. And that's really the question. Where can these machines safely be used? Where do they have a very high reliability of identifying the proper targets so that their deployment complies with international law? That was Dr Alexander Leveringhouse from the Oxford Martin School at Oxford University. The 1914 British Army cookbook has been reprinted for the first time in a 100 years. The recipes were written by the Army School of Cookery and aimed to teach soldiers how to rustle up stews, soups and even curries on the front line. Well, I'm joined now by Warrant Officer James Wilson-White from the Defence Catering Academy in Winchester. Good to speak to you today. Now, some of these recipes are quite surprising. A beef curry, Turkish pilau, even Yorkshire puddings. What do you make of them? I was quite surprised myself when I saw it. Um, <laughs> having not been in the army at that time, uh, not really seen the book. But um, no, no, beef curry and uh, yeah, turkey pilau, uh, a great advance from what was um, being dished out in the times of the cry Crimea. 
Um, yes, good. It was quite interesting. But in reality, I suppose making some of these things would have been perhaps a little bit of a bit of a dream in those kind of conditions during the First World War. Yes, it, yeah, like you said, um, I think it was probably a bit more of an aspiration, um, and, and the book being there as a guide, should the you know the resources be available, I think it would have been a nice to have, to be honest. Okay, so, so you do today's job. What kind of things when you when someone is going out and they're deployed, what, what are the most important ingredients? What, what do you bear in mind? I think I think these days when you when you look at the the recent operations in Afghanistan um, and, and the FOBs and such like, and the smaller locations. You know, when fresh rations do come along, it's all about preserving them and using them to the best of your ability for as long a period as possible and make, you know, the, the ORP that's there on offer that much more appetising and uh, nutritious. So when you're in a forward operating base, how easy is it to make good food? What are the limitations you have to bear in mind? Well, I, th- I think the key that, uh, especially the role I'm in now, where we, we, we train the chefs um, for these um, scenarios, we do an awful lot of improvised cooking where you you know you look at the resources you've got around you um and we try and equip our chefs as best we can to to utilize what what's in and around the area that they're operating in to you know to do these uh yeah, fantastic things with food. So what about the actual nutritional co- content of today's food compared to what it was like back in 1914? I think you've got to look at the whole supply chain issue with that as well um and how how food is you know farmed and, and harvested these days um you know with with the ORP especially we you know that's designed to um you know preserve nutrition nutritious content and with the addition of fresh rations Christopher we can uh, we can make things a lot better I was just I was just thinking something you said about it, it quite different from the Crimea war because the Crimea war um, was quite different, wasn't it, in terms of who was the army. When you get to 1914, you've got a lot of British soldiers who have been served for, for decades in India. So, to them... Hence the curry recipes, I, hence, I presume. Yeah, it would, would have been the sort of thing that would have been quite actually quite use, uh, used to. Um, J- James, what's the most difficult thing you've had to do? Where, where's the, the most difficult place you've had to cook and rustle up a, a good meal? Um, out in Iraq, I, I had a very limited kitchen there, feeding an awful lot of people. Um, How many people? Well, there was only there was there was two of us feeding 160, but it was a it was 24 hour feeding in the particular location I was in, um, with very limited resources. Um, but um, yeah, we made it work. So, what did you do? How did you get round it? Work longer, work harder. Did you pick up any of the local sort of dishes when you were in, in that kind of situation, or you just completely cut off and working in a in a vacuum, as it were? Yeah, no, we were, we were completely completely cut off. Um, we had a good relationship with the Americans. Funny enough, that we were in our lo- uh, a location just down the road, so you know you share experience and you you, you share skills. So, um, in terms of the, your, your favourite dish, what what goes down best with the troops for you? Uh, the troops I was working with at the time, anything fresh. that's the challenge Mm. i guess is it yes all right warrant officer james wilson white from the defense catering academy in winchester thank you very much for your time today christopher uh, around elsewhere this week north korea has announced that no one is allowed to have the same name as its leader they can have the same haircut can't they but not the same name yeah they they go to the same crimper right (laughs) and they say right i want a number four as long as it's like our beloved leader Mm. but kim jong un that's his name. Nobody in the country is allowed now to be called King Jong In. Uh, and why might ha- that be? I uh, mean, because there is. Why would they want to? Isn't we only have one beloved leader, don't we? <laughs> and 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 I mean, everybody really get that sort of straight. Unlike in the past, I mean, my great great grandfather was called Horatio after Nelson, mm. for example. Ah, uh, that's uh, where it all started, is it? Your love of the navy. 
No, I don't mind loving the neighbours. The fact they paid me every day, nobody else has ever done that. Um, <laughs> Certainly not here, that's for sure. <laughs> but, I mean, there is this thing, you know, loads of Napoleons in France, people called Napoleon, people called uh, after famous people. You look, at, look at where we get to now with all the pop stars. I mean, how many Kylies are there, for goodness sake? No, but it's interesting, it's this cult of the individual, and when he walks out, he knows he is the one and only beloved leader. I knew you'd get that Chesney song in there somewhere. Thank you. A- A- Ashton Carter, let's talk about him. Uh, Ashton Carter, if all goes well, maybe by tonight or tomorrow, but late tonight. At the time, time. of this recording, unconfirmed, <laughs> but... Uh, Ashton Carter, uh, who for a long time was number two of the American Defence Department, uh, is probably going to be announced as number one. He is quite different from anything that's walked in that Pentagon before. He is a physicist, uh, he is an Oxford uh, uh, PhD, uh, he has got a huge, huge understanding uh, of advanced physics. I and in understand. fact, when you were talking, shut up, mate. Sorry, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. <laughs> but when you were talking, for example, about robots, mm. Ashton Carter will understand that. He'll understand the physics of it. I understand that his nickname is, uh, he's known as an Uber Wonk. <laughs> what is an Uber Wonk? I think I'm going to call you an Uber Wonk <laughs> after telling me to put my. Uh, an Uber Wonk in, 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 any, in, any, in any style is somebody who sits there. And he knows so much about it that there is no point in trying then to... Then you are an uber-wonk. Trying to pull the wool over his eyes. That's where, <laughs> that's where, that's where, we, that's where you part. But listen, I mean, the important thing is that uh, Chuck Hagel, who mm. was the Defence Secretary, was more or less had to part company, had to go. This man is going to be uh, brought in. Uh, it'd be interesting. He may be the second person only in the Pentagon ever to survive two presidents. He may sort of be the, 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 the stretch bridge. And that's all we have time for this week. Be quiet, Christopher. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFPS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again on our website, bfps.com slash SITREP. We're back at the same time next week. But for now, from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. I didn't mean it really, Christopher, honestly. Sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio.